the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good afternoon and welcome to another Saturday on Woods and Water, South Carolina. It's, uh, (laughs) you know, I wonder what the new normal is going to be. I think everybody is at this point, but, uh, Hey, there's some there's some good news on on parks opening up and trails opening up and you know like I said before through this whole thing is the outdoors has never been closed you know access points may have been but you can always find more so hang in there we're 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 getting there and then you know spring's here summer's coming the beach is going to be open and and look it it uh, it'll be okay. Well, it, it's going to be a busy show. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. We're going to talk to. Uh, uh, about snakes, and then at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk about boats and and all sorts of other stuff. So it's going to be a good one. Thanks for tuning in, and let's jump right into it because we've got Chris Jenkins. He is the chief executive officer of the Orion Society, which is just a little bit south of the border here in Georgia. But uh, they, look, they are a highlight of the Southeastern Wildlife Expo every year. I go down there. I have to go to the Orion tent, and I, Chris, I have to go handle that indigo snake y'all got in there. He is a monster. Yeah, they're they're beautiful animals, Roger. It's uh, it's true. So they're uh, they're actually a snake eating snake. Now yeah. they'll even eat venomous snake. Yeah, uh, but he is. It's an amazing snake. It all one color. You know. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they vary a little bit. You know, their belly scales, the ventral scales, we call them, will be oftentimes a little bit lighter, and then sometimes, depending on the individual, they'll get kind of a uh, a red color on the head. Okay, um, but but generally, yes, they're they're kind of a um, indigo or like a gunmetal, like dark kind yeah. of black colored snake. And just, I'm always amazed at how muscular snakes are. Yeah, one big muscle. One well, big muscle. Really one muscle. <laughs> but one long, <laughs> muscle, very strong. And I was looking on your web. I think it was on your web page. Maybe it was. Maybe it was a Facebook page. But uh, they. Uh, in the study that y'all were doing, one of the guys was out this year or something in the in the in your Savannah outreach program. There it is. There it is. Um, ben was down at um, at the uh, Indigo Snake area, the Longleaf Savannah's research, and his first snake, seven feet two inches, nine pounds. Yeah, that's a that's a good sized snake. You know, <laughs> they're the Indigo snakes are the largest native snake in North America. The record length would be about eight and a half feet. Um, wow. and, and that record comes from down near the Everglades. It's just yeah. longer down there. But yeah, any snake over, any indigo snake over seven feet is a very impressive animal. Those are, those are ones that you don't come out too, too often. Yeah, yeah. Well, folks, if you don't, if you don't want to know what an indigo snake is, you need to Google it. Look it up. It is just a really cool snake. And like I said, it is a highlight of, of seaweed every year. I don't know how many kids I have watched hold that indigo snake and their eyes just eyes and faces are just like i'm holding a huge snake 
<laughs> it's great to see. So y'all, I appreciate the job y'all do down there, and and, and I appreciate you coming on. Take just a moment. Um, you're a you're a herpetologist and, and some other stuff. And take just a moment to introduce yourselves to everybody. Yeah. So um, I am uh, Chris Jenkins. I am the CEO of the Orient Society, and the Orient Society. Um, is a wildlife conservation organization that focuses on conserving reptiles and amphibians. We're, we're based here in the southeast, but we work uh, beyond. We you know, work uh, you know, throughout North America and have some international projects. I'm also uh, adjunct faculty at the, the University of Georgia, um, and uh, where I do have graduate students and work with postdocs. And, those types of things and then um also relevant to your audience i am an avid uh hunter (laughs) and fisherman um i bet i I bet i'm i hunt and fish as much or more than most people out there probably 150 days a year Um, and i'm currently also the chairman for the georgia chapter of uh, backcountry hunters and anglers you're a busy man yeah, loving life, loving life. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, you know, we're going to talk about some snakes and all. We got about four minutes left. You're, you, we talked earlier before we came on the show. You're an avid turkey hunter, uh, hunt southeastern U.S. And you know, there's a big discussion going on right now because everybody's seen. Well, let's put it this way: overall, everybody thinks turkeys are on decline. Now, there are certain pockets where the habitat's good. Um, plenty of food, plenty of mass trees, plenty of bugging areas and everything. And people say, I don't have any problem with turkeys in my area. But you being a turkey hunter, take about three minutes. Talk about what you've seen over the past few years, the, the year decline of turkeys that you're seeing hunting, and what you think is causing it. Because everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I hunt across the southeast. I usually hunt like four to six states. Um, and I try to hunt almost every day of the season. Um, you know, I'll probably get in about 50 plus turkey hunting days a year and, and, uh, try to do that year in, year out. So got a pretty good perspective on it. And, uh, I mostly hunt the mountains. Okay. I live in the mountains, but I would tell you that, um, I have, uh, experienced a, a significant, uh, decline. I've, I've watched the number of turkeys in many places. Uh, going down, but I would say it, it's most pronounced in these mountain areas. Um, right now, I'm hunting the upstate of South Carolina um, in the you know the national forest, the Chattooga uh, Wild and Scenic River Corridor, and I mean the, the turkey populations there are incredibly low. You know, I put them on par with you know what everybody thinks about with Arkansas. We okay. are facing a significant issue with turkey. Why? What what's what has happened in the last ten years? And I I've got my own answer. I want to hear yours. What's happened to cause of the decline? Um, well, I would the first thing I would do is I would point everybody to, to Michael Chamberlain, who's a, a turkey biologist from the University of Georgia, and he's done some really good podcasts. Uh, just did one with Primos, did one with Meat Eater, one with uh, Land of Legacy, and he he discusses it in depth. Um, and I would lean towards him, but I would tell you it's not one thing. Okay. It's a combination of factors. Um, and those factors are everything from predators, uh, increased predator numbers, you know, human activities, subsidized certain predators, uh, you know, the, the 
our hunting activities in terms of hunting things like raccoons and other things of that nature have changed over time and, and particularly fewer people are hunting those animals. We have this coyote now in the region that we didn't have for a lot of years. Uh, there's also habitat issues. Um, there are a lot of habitat. There is a lot of habitat in, in a lot of places, like you mentioned, but we're certainly um, losing a lot of habitat. And again, uh, Dr. Chamberlain does a good job of explaining some of that in this podcast I mentioned. Uh, there's disease issues that we know very little about that could potentially uh, be having an impact. Um, there's also, you know, from a hunting perspective, uh, there's uh, the idea of harvesting some of these dominant birds too early and what impact that could have. We don't know the answer. Um, and then this year, of course, it's kind of a perfect storm with this pandemic we're facing and everybody's out uh, turkey hunting <laughs> right now. Yeah. And uh, we could see this could be a year that really puts the nail in the coffin for some localized areas. And I would encourage everybody to go listen to that latest Primo's uh, podcast because that's exactly what they talk about, the effects of coronavirus on turkey populations and, and Dr. Chamberlain's on that. Just yeah, I mean, great information, and I agree with a lot of that. I mean, you know, predators we don't trap anymore. Um, to to yeah, every, turkey season is one thing that didn't close, you know. And there are a lot of people, me included, I haven't turkey hunted in 15 years. I went out with my camera the other day and called one in. And I'm like, wow, maybe I had a turkey hunt. So I went turkey hunt the other day. Hadn't been in you know 15 years. So it is. It's. Uh, <laughs> Uh, of course, I didn't have near as good a luck as I did with the camera. But uh, anyway, <laughs> he he uh, he never appeared when I had the gun in my hand, which is what usually happens with me. Uh, but let's uh, let's break. Let's take this first break. When we come back, Chris Jenkins. We're going to talk about snakes and actually how good they are. So hang on to the other side. Welcome back from Woods and Water, South Carolina. We uh, got a little bit of intro there with Chris Jenkins from the Orient Society. Not talking about snakes, talking about turkeys. You know, it's a. I'm serious, Chris. I went out of the camera, hadn't turkey hunted in 15 years, and I, I, I had a box call, and I was like, okay, I hope I remember to do this. Turkey was on Google Earth. He was 285 yards away from me when I started calling. He came on a run, left two hens. Hello, <laughs> that just doesn't happen. And he, came, and he was within 12 yards of me before he smelled a rat, you know. And uh, I got some great pictures of him, which was what I was after. But I was like, oh, great, I could call this. And I went the other day and, you know, of course, called and nothing. <laughs> Same place. Turkey's still there. My brother's seen him. I didn't get any answer. So, but, uh, and I appreciate your insight on the turkey population decline. That is, um, it's it's always everybody's got an opinion. It's always nice to hear somebody else's opinion as to whether you agree or disagree, and then you need to go research why you disagree. You know? Yep. Um, exactly. Okay, snakes. Look, I'm not a huge snakes. fan. <laughs> we I grew up in the country, and I I I would hate to tell you how many green snakes I caught, black snakes I caught, uh, copperheads that I ran from, water moccasins I ran from. Um, now snakes are kind of like 
Okay, I know they're out there. I really don't like to go where they are when they're out. Um, but I'm not f- afraid of them. I'm just giving I have a healthy respect for them. And I think that's where I'd like to start this off. It, you know, snakes need, we need snakes, right? Yeah, I mean, snakes are, uh, you know, snakes are animals too. Uh, they're, they're really important, just like the turkeys are important and all of these um, animals are important. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, you know, I live out, you know, in the country in the woods and, you know, I don't want a rattlesnake biting my child or, or my dog or anything like that. Um, and I can understand that, but, but these animals are important and, you know, we, we shouldn't want to eradicate every one of them. You know, there are only so many pieces you can take off an airplane before it won't fly. <laughs> and snakes are one of those pieces. So. And a very important piece. It's springtime, you know, like I said, South Carolina State Parks are opening back up. Trails are opening back up. People are going to be out there. Snakes are coming out of their their wintertime slumbers, and there's going to be interaction. What do, what do people do when they encounter a snake? Well, the first thing I'll tell you is that the majority of snakes that you are going to encounter in South Carolina are going to be non-venomous. Uh, there are six species of, of venomous snakes in the state of South Carolina. Um, mo- most of them would be in the coastal plain, um, but you, certainly there are venomous snakes throughout the state. Um, and you definitely can uh, interact with them. I mean, you will come in contact with them, I should say. Okay. And I would say the most important thing is to, to know how to identify them, uh, you know, in order to be safe. Um, and then whether you can identify them or not, I mean, the, the most important thing you can do is to just leave a snake alone. And if you do that, you'll have absolutely no problem with it. There's so many myths about snakes chasing people, <laughs> you know, forming a hoop and rolling down a hill and, you know, these are all myths. Most snakes don't want anything to do with you. So if you have any concern about whether this is a venomous species or not, just leave it alone. Obviously, there are some situations. Maybe you have a, a, a snake in your pool or a snake in a residence under your steps or something like that where you do have to deal with it. Um, but I would say your first step really is to just identify it. And then another step is to, to you know, basically keep your distance. You know, most venomous snakes, uh, the furthest that they can strike is a third to a half of the length of their body. So if you take, say, like a copperhead or a timber rattlesnake, you know, they're only going to be striking maybe 12 inches for a relatively big snake. And what that means is you need to, like, touch them. You need to step on them or try to pick them up to actually get a bite. Okay. Um, So, yeah. And, and, you know, venomous... Everybody thinks, oh, God, I got, if I'm going to get bit by a venomous snake, I'm going to die. And that's another myth. Because, especially. Yeah, I mean, yeah go ahead. Go, go, go ahead, Roger. I'm no, no. Sorry. No, I was going to say, that's another one of those myths. Tell us about why it's a myth. Yeah, so, well, the first thing I will say is that there are species in South Carolina that you could die from. And I would not be surprised if, if most years there's a death in South Carolina from a venomous snake bite. But that is a 
a very, very uh, rare occurrence. Um, you know, I like to say, take the, the Southeast Wildlife Expo, for yeah. example. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I do those big snake shows in the, uh, in the center of the ring there. And, and, you know, I'm loading venomous snakes and taking them out. And we're getting venomous snakes under control and holding them and talking to people. And I like to tell people that by far the most dangerous thing I did that day was drive there. I mean, the point, and the point I'm trying to make in Charleston, that, especially. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the point I'm trying to make is that the actual risk or danger involved with a snake encounter is so over exaggerated because it's just, it's such a horrific event for people. The idea of a snake bite, it's like a spider or a shark. It's one of these things that, that people kind of lose their mind. So first thing I'd tell you is that your chances of dying, if you do even get a venomous snake bite, your chances of dying from that are uh, very low. Your chances of dying from a lot of other things like bee stings and horses and car wrecks, much, much higher. Okay. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that about, Anywhere from like 25 to 50 percent of venomous snake bites are what we call dry bites, okay. um, and so venomous snakes can control their venom. They need their venom for other things. It's not for people, um, and so about half of the time, you actually won't even get any venom injected if you're bit by, say, a rattlesnake. Okay. Put that baby at rest. Um, and that, those are your venomous snakes. You, look, they are. Would it be fair to say they're pretty far, few and far between as opposed to the non-venomous snakes, population-wise? Um, it, it depends on the species. Like, for example, like coral snakes would be one that would be incredibly rare for somebody to see. I mean, certainly people see them, but they're, they're rare in and okay. of themselves. They're only on the coastal plain. They're underground most time. Pygmy rattlesnakes the same way. There are certain species, I'd say in particular, uh, the two... Uh, Agkistrodon, which is a genus, but the copperhead and the cottonmouth, okay. you know, those can be relatively common. You know, I was talking about the upstate yeah. uh, where I'm where I'm hunting these days, and there are there's very healthy copperhead populations. Okay. It'd be one of the more common snakes, and the same with cottonmouths. You can get into certain wetlands where they're yeah. relatively <laughs> high density, but there are so many more species yeah. that are non-venomous your chances of, of seeing a venomous snake are relatively low. And if you're not, again, if you're not stepping on it, if that's not how you find it, or you're not touching it, it you should actually take it as a really special event. You know, yeah. people go people go all the way to, like, places like Yellowstone National Park to see a wolf in the wild. You know, and if you're up in the upstate of South Carolina and you're you're hiking in the National Forest and you see a timber rattlesnake off the side of the trail, you should treat it just like that. That's a pretty special event. You've just seen this incredible uh, predator in the wild. That's a cool way to look at it. Never thought about it that way. That is cool. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the others. Um, you know, you're outside mowing your grass and you run across a king snake. That's a pretty good snake to have around the house, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think any snake's a good snake, but for, I bet most people, every, you know, would think that a king snake is. And so, uh, king snakes, like indigo snakes that we were talking about in the last segment, these are snakes that specialize 
in eating other reptiles. So they eat, you know, other lizards and snakes. And, you know, a king snake uh, would also be a snake that would eat venomous snakes. So um, typically they're immune to the, the venom of the, the venomous snakes that they live in the same range of. And, uh, so if you have a king snake, you actually have a, a, a venomous snake predator uh, in, your, in your area. And there's plenty of those others. I mean, you know, even just a common black snake or a green snake, I mean, they're eating stuff you don't want in the house. They're they're controlling the rat population, would you say? Yeah. So, you know, all snakes are predators. And so um, many of them eat small mammals, which, you know, cause, uh, you know, people uh, problems. A lot of them eat insects of different types, you know, some of the smaller snakes. But, yeah, I mean, Snakes are, are definitely feeding on a variety of, you know, of animals that we think of as pests, animals that cause us problems of one type or another. So um, that is another another you know, way to think about it. I mean, you know, having a, a rat snake that's living in your barn is definitely, that snake can be feeding on rats in your barn. So um, that's a benefit in and of itself. We hear it all the time. The only good snake is a dead snake. Got about a minute. What do you say to people that have that attitude? You know, I just say to, to snakes are animals too. And again, I don't want them on my back step, but when you go out into these wild places across South Carolina and you go out of your way to kill a snake, um, you know, you should just give them a break. That animal belongs there. Um, if I was going out of my way to kill every black bear, uh, that I saw in the state, people would be up in arms. But, um, you know, people don't feel that way about snakes. But, again, snakes are animals, too. Um, get over the fear um, and enjoy this this amazing animal that that is incredibly diverse in South Carolina, one of the top states in the country for snakes. Pretty cool, and that's where we live. Well, I mean, I think it was a pretty good interview. It got about 30 seconds left. Anything else you want to say in closing? No, I'd just say that, uh, you know, again, kind of end it with a, a similar note that um, snakes are fascinating animals. We're trained from the time we're young to fear them. Get past that and and just appreciate these animals for what they are, just another animal in the woods uh, that are really interesting, and, and I think that will change your perspective a little bit if you think about it like that. Chris, I appreciate you taking time today to be on the show. Um, folks, the Orion Society, their website is orionsociety.org. That's one R, two N's. Hey, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for your insight into turkeys and snakes. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. That sounds great. Thank you, Roger. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right, Bye. folks, hang on through the break. We've got more Woods and Water South Carolina on the other side. This is this is just for you, Joe. <laughs> it's got it. Is it coming? It's coming up for you. Hang on. It's coming. A little hootie. A little hootie. And it's coming up with your state, your place here. There you go. <laughs> 
You know, you know that he is the voice and the face of South Carolina tourism for 2020. Oh, he is. He is. He is, and he's in your backyard. He is. He he lives <laughs> not far from me. In fact, we've seen him in Target a few times. There you go. I, I understand. He he frequents every place a normal guy frequents. He does. He, great guy. The only thing, the only problem I have with him is he. When he was younger, he made me laugh. When he sings now, he makes me cry. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. No, that's oh exactly man. Right. Well, folks, we are uh, we're talking with Joe Abetta. Uh, I met you at CEFWA down in Hilton Head, which is the Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife Services. Um, gosh, we, I mean, it just, we just started talking and we stood there and we talked and we talked and we talked. And Neil Paul from Visit Anderson was there and he talked and we talked and we talked for a couple of days. And, uh, you just, man, life experiences, you've got them. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate that. No, we, uh, we did have a good conversation. It was just kind of funny how, uh, you know, we just started talking, like you said, and, and yeah. you could tell we were just three, uh, you know, go boys from South Carolina. <laughs> just having it. a conversation. Shooting the bull, I think, is pretty much how I'd sum that up. Yeah. I wouldn't call it talking. I'd call it shooting the bull. Okay, shooting the bull. Okay, well, I can agree with that because, you know, I, I like to shoot the bull too. Um, there you go. But you, you really, seriously, you've got a lot going on, and we talked about it. He, folks, he, uh, he works a lot with Ray Marine and Fleer. I mean, exactly. You're, you're, uh, would you consider yourself a sales representative for him, or how? What do you consider yourself when you're dealing with Ray Marine and Fleer? Yeah, so um, I'm the director of business development there you go. for okay. Fleer Maritime, and we sell the uh, Ray Marine brand under uh, Fleer Maritime. So I work mostly with government agencies, military first responders, um, to uh, get them the equipment that they need for doing their missions. And then, then he, he says, hey, you need to download this. You're an outdoorsman, hunter, fisherman. You need to download this app. It's called ICO. And I would like ICO. He goes, in case of, you know, and, and you've developed this app. And, and when I originally thought about getting you on and we talked about it, I wanted to do both. I think, I think we both decided that ICO deserves its own part of the show. And we're not even going to bother with that today, but, but hit just a little bit on what ICO is. ICO is a personal safety app that um, keeps your information private. And when you go out on a boat or go for a run or a hike or any kind of activity by yourself or even with a group of folks, um, it, it, it discreetly tracks you, does not share that information with anybody. However, if you fail to check in or if the accelerometer is triggered in your phone due to a fall or an accident, it will fire off, and it will fire off an alert back to the user and say, hey, are you okay? And if you fail to respond, it will then initiate an emergency notification to your designated point of contact. And uh, hopefully in the future, near future, it will be tied directly into the new E911 system. Wow. And that's something he's done. That's, I guess, maybe job number two or I don't know. Will you consider that <laughs> two or three? And, and then also at that time, you didn't tell us this, but shortly after, uh right. You and uh, I guess your brother acquired That's the uh, acquired the uh, boat towboat U.S. services in Charleston. We did. Yep. Yeah. Our my brother and I. He um, he's a licensed uh, sixteen hundred ton master. He runs big um, articulating tug and barges carrying petroleum products in the Gulf as his day job. Um, and uh, my background in the in the U.S. Coast Guard uh, for twenty four years. Uh, we were approached by the former owner 
of the local operation down here. And through my relationship that I developed with him, um, basically selling him um, Ray Marine and FLIR equipment to his boats. Um, about nine months after that uh, that meeting with him, he sat me down one morning and said, hey, would you be interested in buying this? And I was just <laughs> kind of caught off guard like, uh, you know, I have a full-time job and a couple of other projects <laughs> in the works. Uh, and and it's funny because, you know, everybody has a mentor. And sure. uh, I, I called my mentor immediately and I, I mentioned it to him. And I can't say exactly what he said because, you know, this is a family show. Yes, yes, like, FCC you, is listening. That's right. He said, are you crazy? <laughs> how, how do you even have time for doing what you do now? And I... I just kind of laughed and I took that as a challenge and uh, sat down with my brother and, you know, of course he was all on it. And then we had to, of course, sit down with the bosses, um, our wives, yes. who, by the way, are technically the majority owners oh. of our company. Ah. So this is technically, this is a woman-owned company and they're yes. very active in the day-to-day operation of our company. Because, you know, like I said, my brother and I, we have full-time jobs. Sure. Yeah. So it's just one of those things. and. You know, we, 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 we prayed about it. We talked about it. Um, got some counsel from family. And uh, next thing you know, we, we're the proud owners of a major national <laughs> operation <laughs> in one of the busiest and most historic ports in the country. <laughs> and, and Steve Little is the guy you bought it from, right? That's correct. We yeah. purchased it from Steve Little. Great guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was always – we uh, years and years ago – Back when the internet was new, <laughs> there's a, <laughs> I hate to say that, but a bunch of guys got together on the internet and, uh, a guy formed charlestonfishing.com and I haven't been on there in years, but years ago we had this, okay, every keyboard warrior thinks you're a better fisherman. We're going to have something called the put up or shut up fishing tournament in Charleston. <laughs> and it's not, it is not how much it weighs, folks. If you have the longest flounder, the longest redfish, or the longest trout, and the only rule is you can't step on him to make him any longer, <laughs> you can't squish him. Uh, and I got beat. Right. I got beat because I'm sure somebody gave that trout a Botox injection. That bottom lip was just fatter than it should have been. I lost by a lip. Um, <laughs> but but Steve, when he was in the kind of in the group and all, and uh, we you know he'd give us a hundred dollars a year or something as a sponsorship. And, and it's always funny because I only saw him like twice a year. <laughs> you know, once when I right. rode down there and said, "Hey, Steve, we're gonna have another." Oh yeah, here's your check. You know, and the other when he right. came to the dinner, we always tried to have a dinner afterwards, and he came and you know at that time it was his wife, and I think they might have had one one little girl. Yep, and they've then, got their daughter. Yeah, yeah, and then he's got a. Doesn't he have a son now too? Uh, or is it just one? There's, I, 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 I can't I remember. His daughter. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean, she was just a baby back then, you know. And right. uh, but Steve was a great guy, and and um, and you you. Yeah. It, yeah, no. It it's it was great purchasing it from him. It really was. He um he he had a good operation down here, had a lot of respect and admiration from um others within the towing industry. And um yeah, we just it, it's it's been it's been a very smooth transition and and quite frankly, I still talk to him probably once a week because wow. this is a whole aspect that I just never knew before from all my years on the Coast Guard. I mean, I'd always dealt with the local towing um commercial assistance providers uh, okay. everywhere I was stationed. Um, but uh, I never had the backside, you know, the inside baseball sure. of what was really going on. So there's things that pop up that I, I will send him a text or a phone call, and, and he'll help walk me through it. So it's been a really good relationship. <laughs> Absolutely. 
You know, we we said when we started this <laughs> before we came on the air. <clears throat> We don't have near enough time to do what we wanted to do. We're, we've only got like a, uh, I don't know, maybe a two and a half minutes left in this segment. That's not enough time for a good story, is it? No, because, I mean, what do you want to know? Do you want to hear about the people that we caught um, on a boat naked one night? Or do you want to hear about the two guys that we rescued hanging onto a cooler or the, um, the, yes. the drug interdictions? I mean, it's, it's like you... There's 11 missions in the United States Coast Guard, okay. um, and so you can just pick one other than ice breaking because I've never been stationed uh, north where there was snow. Okay. Um, and ask me about that, and I could probably give you a good story to go with. <laughs> well, okay. Well, let's save the story for the next segment. Ta- you got about a minute or so to go, a minute and a half. Gosh, okay. I hate when it does that. Um, wh- where are we? Tell us in a minute. Talk about your Coast Guard experience. Sure. Um, 18 years old, right out of high school here in Charleston. Didn't know what I wanted to do. I met this really pretty girl and uh, knew that I couldn't do what I was doing at the time to, to really, um, you know, keep her uh, interested in me. So her grandfather was a uh, retired Coast Guard. And um, I had heard about the Coast Guard a little bit because my grandfather was in it during World War II. And um, I just literally walked, <laughs> walked into a recruiting office on a Thursday. And said I wanted to join the Coast Guard, and I guess they must have been desperate because um, <laughs> I wasn't the best student. Um, I just was lucky enough to have never been caught for doing anything wrong. So yep. My uh, my background was good, and they they signed me up, and I've been and I joined as an E one. I left literally five days after signing the papers, and uh, next thing you know, I spun around. Twenty four years later, my career took me from junior enlisted to mid grade officer. I um, had multiple commands. You know, Outer Banks, uh, Graveyard of the Atlantic. I was a group commander, deputy group commander there. Um, and then ultimately I, I commanded the uh, Coast Guard station at Miami Beach, which was uh, uh, unbelievable. So, you know, I had a great career and uh, worked with some wonderful people doing an awesome mission. And that, folks, is where we're going to come back to this one because I asked him to give us a story, and it literally took him like 10 minutes. of I could see him visually scratching his head. Come up with a good one. So hang on, folks. We're going to come back with Bert, with Joe. Sorry about that. And uh, and get a story, and then we're going to talk about boat towing and insurance. So hang on. More Woods and Water South Carolina on the other side. It's coming, isn't it, Joe? <laughs> it is. Needs to hurry up. <laughs> I gotta fix my boat. Uh, see, that's it. Break out another thousand, right? Oh yeah, that's it. yeah. <laughs> we named our boat One More Thing. One more thing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, mine is Daddy's Time Out. There you go. Because that's when my girl sent me when I got to be too much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we uh, welcome back to Woods and Water South Carolina, last segment of the show today. We are talking to Joe Abetta. He is, um, he's, a, he's got a lot going on. Let's just leave it at that. I ask you for a story. Yes, sir. So we need a story. 
Sure. I, I think that probably the most memorable story that I have is when I was uh, the commander, uh, the commanding officer of the Coast Guard station down at Miami Beach. Okay. I, um, I was about six months from transferring out after a, a very successful tour down there, doing everything from search and rescue to migrant interdictions to uh, drug smuggling interdictions. Um, and, uh, and we were having a morning grief one time. It was, you know, one morning, it was like, you know, 8.45 in the morning. We were getting ready to do a... Uh, uh, offshore gun shoot for training. And see that right there, offshore gun shoot, and and we're not shooting like thirty out sixes. We're like machine guns, right? Right, right yeah. In <laughs> Q40 Bravos. Oh, right. okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Every fifth round is a tracer, which there is you? really cool because they, they skip when they hit the water. Okay. So anyway, but um, no. So all of a sudden, the search and rescue alarm went off, and the Offgoing crew was the ones going to do the um, the training, and the oncoming crew hadn't quite gotten there yet. And uh, I walked down to the command center, and my officer of the day, he was like, "Sir, um, this is what we got." And uh, basically, uh, a, a man had washed up on the beach uh, off of the Virginia Key, which is right there off of Biscayne Bay in Miami. Okay. And he told a beach walker, you know, he was exhausted, and he, uh, you know, a morning jogger or beach walker found him and said. I, my brother is out there and apparently um, they had been out fishing. They both worked uh, the swing shift. They got off around 11 o'clock that night at some local factory and they um, went fishing and about an hour into it, they were anchored out about four miles offshore and they took, it was dark. They took a wave over the stern of their little 16 foot boat. Mm. And next thing you know, they were capsized and found themselves in the water swimming. And, uh, so, make a long story short, basically, um, we got the notification. I took the boat and we launched immediately. And um, I got the reporting source on the phone. She was hysterical. Oh, I can she, imagine. She was. I, I, you can picture her because she was. She was so hysterical, but I could tell she was pointing because the phone <laughs> was in her mouth that she's pointing. She's and she's like, I can see him. I can see him. And um, she said. But there's a helicopter over top of them. Well, it turns out the local morning news from Channel 10 uh, had heard the call, and they diverted their helicopter over. Uh, well, then the radio call comes in from the command center, and they said, you know, give us a call on landline. And it's never good when the Coast Guard command center tells the boat to call on landline. And he's like, hey, just so you know, you're about to go live on national television on all the major <laughs> networks and 24-hour news stations. And... Um, Sure enough, the helicopter had found um, a man hanging on to the lid of a cooler about three miles offshore. So I knew that the lady couldn't see him. <laughs> um, so we, uh, we we pulled up to him very slowly. Um, you know, we got to him as fast as we could. But, you know, you have to go slow. With, as you, when you get to people who've been in the water for a long time who don't have a life jacket on because they tend to relapse. And when they relax, they can slip under. And you don't want to so, swamp them with a wake either. Correct. You don't want to swamp <laughs> them with a wake. Um, and uh, so we get them on board, and um, we we lay them on the on the deck. And I, I kneel down next to him. My crew started checking them out, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, where was your life jacket?" And he said, "It was under the seat." And it happened so fast. It happened within about he said fifteen seconds. Oh my goodness. And they found themselves in the pitch black dark with nothing, no, no life jacket, anything to hang on to. And uh, so, yeah, it was uh, it was a crazy experience. But for me, 
after my career, I'd had 22 years in at this time. And I, you know, I had personally pulled dozens of people off of coolers and debris and, and rescued folks. Um, but for me as the commanding officer of the Coast Guard station, it's like the sheriff being in the bank parking lot <laughs> when the bank is robbed. It just doesn't happen. The chief of police is never sitting in the bank parking lot. Right. And for me to be out there and, I, you know, I'm, I'm I don't do the duty cruise. I very rarely, you know, I would only get on way for training at certain operations. So for me to be able to save this guy's life was like kind of like the, the cult to be on the boat with my crew when they saved this guy's life was just like the culmination of, of all these years of the Coast Guard and everything I had trained for up until that point. We are so going to have to do a, a after hours podcast or something and just let you sit there <laughs> and talk about stories. Folks, I kid you not, at CIFA, his was the place to be. If I was going to be walking that aisle where people were set up, I was going to be right over there. Okay, great story, man. Yep. And and just one more reason to wear that life jacket. When you don't think you're going to need it, that's when you're going to need it. No, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of life jackets. I've always been a proponent of life jackets. Yep, they're uncomfortable. I get it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not like a car. When you have a car accident, you're not moving, and you're yeah. not going to drown. Um, and when you're unconscious and, and you have a boating accident, it's, it's just – it's it's terrible. It's that the outcome is generally not favorable. Yeah. Towboat U.S. It's, you know, <laughs> people are people. Hey, the boat ramps are back open. People yep. are are, are going to be out on the water pretty soon for pleasure. Right now, there's a lot of fishermen out there airing lures and all sorts of stuff out and catching a lot of fish. You know, like yep. a life jacket, a good towing membership. We want to make a differentiation between boat insurance and towing insurance. A yep. good tow policy is indispensable. Absolutely, it's it's one of those things where um, I, I I feel bad when we get the phone call from somebody who's broken down or their battery died or they're stuck on a sandbar or they, they just they, they can't finish their journey and um, they call up and we I ask them if they have a boat U.S. membership a towing policy uh, or towing membership. Um, and they say no, because the hourly rate for us to move a boat with a licensed captain with the type of equipment that we carry is not cheap. No. And it's, you know, it's, it's upwards of $300 plus an hour. Yeah. And a towing membership cost for the top level towing membership with Boat US is $179 a year. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Okay, you could have bought five of them <laughs> to get towed back in. And and the worst part is when you hear, when you say the amount and they repeat it back to you. Yes. And you can tell that their wife is next to them. And then you go, oh, man, it's going to be a long day, night, week for this poor fella. Yeah. Um, what I like to do is when people call me and our call our dispatch, and we find out they're a member, we say, okay, well, hopefully you got enough. Um, supplies to keep on enough bait to keep on fishing, and enough uh, beverages to keep yourself uh, hydrated until we get there. And sit back and enjoy the and enjoy the fishing while you uh, wait for us to come get you. What a, I mean, you, you talk about a dead battery or stranded on the sandbar. And if you haven't been stranded on the sandbar and you own a saltwater boat, you obviously haven't been on the water long enough. Um, or you're a liar. Or you're a liar. I wasn't going to call my <laughs> listeners liars, but, you know, <laughs> that's the other Sorry, thing. <laughs> um, what are some of the – okay, that that is uh, – okay, the dead battery. 
Well, I've had them probably on sandbar. You're probably not going to do that in the upstate uh, on Lake Murray or Lake Hartwell. Um, out of gas is another good one. Um, yeah. You know, but Charleston gives you some unique opportunities. And if you keep up with the Facebook page, um, y'all do some pretty cool stuff. We do. We, you know, it, you know, you know, we got the, the the common stuff like you mentioned, the batteries and the, and the out of fuel, but. Um, then we get the people who are up on the sandbar um, and or came out of Shem Creek and are new to the area and crab didn't realize the crab bank. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, if you go to our um, if you go to our website, um, towboatuscharleston.com, you will see a video of us that was taken by the tourist helicopter um, that went over as yes. we were actually pulling a guy off of off of track bank and um, it's amazing footage and it just goes to show you this you know there is no day is the same in our world no. um, as a tow boat no. operator um tow boat so it's, it's invaluable you know and then we of course we get the salvages you know, you know the, the common things that we see are the big storms coming sure and the bilge pumps are running all night because it's a torrential downpour for eight hours and then the battery dies because the shore tie wasn't turned on. Um, and then the boat fills up with water. And then, as you know, it just only gets worse from there. Yes. Um, so we get those. We just did one of those uh, Saturday, Sunday, 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 a 38-foot um, motor yacht sank at the dock. Um, yes. And because it was a, bad, a dead battery and uh, the bilge pumps didn't come on. So you see those. You see we had a guy run up into the um, – uh, Marsh, we have a little lake uh, up here off of Goose Creek, um, just north of Charleston. And um, it's, a, it's a closed lake, but there are, they, they say there's like a thousand alligators per <laughs> mile in this lake. The local authorities, because he was so far up into the marsh, almost into the woods with his boat, because um, he ran, you know, ran into the area at, you know, when it was dark, they would not put people into the marsh on foot. To cup, take the people off. Oh my goodness! They medevac them. They lifted, airlifted them off of the boat because of all the alligators. They were afraid that if something happened, somebody fell on the marsh, that they could get attacked by alligators. Oh wow! So, we, so now we've got to go out to the boat. <laughs> oh, they wow. weren't going to airlift us into the boat, so we had to use ladders <laughs> and kind of create like a gang. Yeah, yeah. Just to put a tow line. On. Yeah. So well, th- those are the kinds of things that we think. You got about thirty seconds, maybe forty seconds. How easy is it to get it? And if you've got a Geico policy, you can add a boat. Yes, talk about that for a moment. That's correct. Um, if you have a Geico um, marine insurance policy, just get with your local agent and uh, get them to add that towing endorsement uh, onto the policy, um, and then you'll be covered uh, for up to three thousand dollars, which pretty much has you know get you any kind of towing anywhere you need to go. Um, and then if you have a, a lake. If you're on the lake, and that's primary means of uh, being out on the water, um, you can go to um, BoatUS.com and sign up for a membership uh, right there for the lakes, uh, saltwater or unlimited gold. Those are our three levels. Uh, unlimited gold is only about $20 more than unlimited, and it gets you uh, the maximum coverage that you can get. And covers you for just about anything. Joe, love it. End of the show. We'll talk to you again, man. Yes, sir. Great talking to you, brother.